and welcome to the Wharton Fintech podcast. I'm your host Tarang Gupta and our guest today is Stephanie Chu. Stephanie is a partner at Portage, a global fintech and financial services investment platform. She is passionate about funding the next generation of financial services entrepreneurs and currently serves on the boards of Albert, Atomic Financial and Conquest Planning. Prior to Portage, Stephanie led a team which built and launched a leading digital advice platform in Canada. And prior to that, she was an early employee at a payment startup working on mobile banking solutions and a consultant at PCG. Stephanie holds a bachelor's from Queen's University. Join us as we explore how Stephanie's career pivots led her to venture capital, the areas within fintech she focuses on, how she defines embedded infra in fintech, what is product innovation versus business model innovation, how Portage creates value for its portfolio companies, and much more. Hope you enjoy the show. Hey, Steph. Good evening. How are you? I am good. On the tail, on the mend from uh, a cold. Otherwise, feeling good. And where are you joining in from today? I am in New York today. Okay, awesome. Well, let's start. Given an overview of your career, like how did you get involved in fintech investing? And then generally, how you got involved in VC? Yeah, sounds good. So I my first entree into the fintech world was I actually worked for a B2B payments company right out of school. It was an amazing experience really doing text-based mobile banking services. And it, for a lot of different reasons, didn't work. Uh, and it was my first entree into the startup world. It made me realize that I was, I was really going... Uh, I knew I would go back to it. I knew I would go back to tech in some way. But I essentially then, when it didn't work, decided that I needed to get a real job. I ended up in the consulting world. I mainly ended up in financial services because, honestly, I wanted to live in cities. And that was the only way that you could end up really living in a city was if you wanted to go work in a bank, it's still 20 to 30% of, of GDP of most countries is in financial services, if not more. And so, and it is the one consistent thing that is based in a city and not based in, in little towns, multiple hours away from cities. And if and, and those of you who have done consulting in your past will know what that rigmarole is like. And so I really, I would say, almost fell into the financial services practice in my consulting days because I wanted to be in New York and SF and and places and London and and places where places where I wanted to live. And so I did the random walk of consulting for a little while. And I ended up in a, in a, in a position where I got to spin up a, basically a retail trading and advice app for uh, a large Canadian bank. I'm, I'm from Toronto originally. That's where I grew up. And, and it was, I was working with a, a team and like actually a really awesome team of engineers, designers. And I spent, almost two years 
like designing, implementing, and then eventually launching this this business, which is now kind of the backbone of what this bank now uses for retail advice. So it's how their retail branches talk to the majority of their customers, at least on the on the advice channel. And so it was a super formative experience for me because it really, I think in many ways, has it was all kind of part of a thesis that I feel very strongly about, which is really that it's A, very hard to innovate within a large company. And B, it is, I think every, despite technological improvements and despite the fact that we're all used to being on our phones 24-7, I think that there's a huge group of people forever that are going to want to talk to a human, especially about financial issues. And that's actually a thread that I've held across a lot of different investments that I've made over time. And I can talk about that. But so I left that opportunity knowing that I didn't want to work for a large company. And I ended up meeting Paul and Adam, the the kind of co-founders of Portage, shortly after that. I had a very specific point of view on fintech. I had a very specific point of view on what I wanted to do. And in the early days, we were trying to still... They had a thesis on fintech. I had a thesis on fintech. And I met them and there was a little bit of a meeting of the minds in terms of how we saw the world. Their early backers were all large incumbent financial institutions. And again, I had a very specific thesis on how innovation works within a large company. And, and, and truly, my perspective was that it's very hard to do. And so we started investing out of a small fund. We were lucky in the kind of wave that we hit. That was in 2016. And it was at the kind of beginning, I would say kind of in the middle of the fintech wave, of the first fintech wave. And we were lucky enough to be in a few interesting companies very early on. We were the first investors in Wealthsimple, the first investors in a company called Allen, the first investors or some of the first investors in, in, in Clearco, et cetera. So we kind of hit an interesting wave, allowed us to parlay that into a second fund and then a third fund, which is what we're investing out of now. So it was a combination of a sector expertise and focus in, in fintech and in financial services that led me to venture at the end of the day. And so a, a combination of knowing that I wanted to work for and with startups, having had an experience both as a builder and a and as a domain as a person that for better or for worse had has spent the last decade building a career in financial services and in fintech and having like a very specific thesis on where I thought the the industry was going. And honestly, a bit of luck because I met Paul and Adam and they shared a very similar perspective on the market, which I can kind of get into shortly, but that's what brought me there. That's so fascinating. I would not assume a, a, an average career to look so diverse in terms of skill sets required. But within fintech, you especially focus on embedded infrastructure and crypto plus DeFi. For our listeners, can you break it down for, for us? Like, What is embedded infra and what is the role of crypto within fintech? So I would say I actually focus on three different areas is how I think about it. The first is actually consumer fintech, 
which is a very contrarian and unpopular place to be focused at this particular time in the market cycle, I still have extremely strong belief that consumer experiences in fintech are going to continue to drive a lot of value, not only for end customers, but also for investors at the end of the day, just in different business models that exist. That may, that may have in different business models that, that I think are going to exist going forward than exist today. Like, and then embedded infra, I think is really a lot of people have already spoken about this, but we really think about it as there's a whole set of infrastructure today that allows non fintechs and fintechs themselves to monetize via financial services products. The most obvious example of this is payments. So the ability to, if you are a SaaS platform, a SaaS operating system, a point of sale operating system of some sort, you can embed now via APIs the ability to capture a portion of payments revenue. And this, this is true also for other kinds of embedded products like embedded lending products, embedded banking products. And so really it's an enabler that allows other kinds of companies to monetize via financial products. And that's what we consider to be embedded fintech. I think banking as a service is an obvious example of this. We've got a company called Tinkterra that does that. Embedded In embedded lending, we've got a company called OatFi that does that as well. And also in the embedded API space, but a slightly different cake on it is a company called Atomic, which, which does payroll direct deposit switching. It's a piece of embedded infrastructure that we believe gives people access to super important data, which sits today in the payroll system uh, and allows a lot of fintechs to do a fundamental thing that improves customer stickiness, like switch the direct deposit. And so these are all examples of what we consider to be embedded infra. And then to the third piece, I spend a lot of time looking at the intersection and the convergence of fintech and crypto. If you think, if, if you're investing in fintech, you have to be looking at crypto. There's no question in, in our mind, even from the very beginning in 2016, that there is a clear convergence. If you think about what the promise of crypto and DeFi really is, it's about creating a brand new financial system that disintermediates everything in our existing financial system. Because that's actually what the promise of blockchain is. It's can you create trustless systems that that allow a more transparent, a fairer, a cheaper, a faster financial system. And there's a lot of theses that fit under that. Financial services is the most intermediated intermediate, one of the most intermediated industries that there is, what does a bank do? They keep your deposits, they lend them out, they pay you an interest rate. It's what does a payments custodian bank do? They take your payments, they verify that the accounts are who they ought to be and they transmit your payment. I mean, it's, it's an every single, an insurance company holds your premium in case something happens and it verifies claims at the end of the day, I think these are all very intermediated processes. And so there's a whole other potential financial future where we disintermediate a lot of these key institutions that already exist today, which are, as I mentioned already, double like 20, 30% of different GDPs globally. So there's a huge profit pool available. 
Let's talk about Portage. Portage aims to invest and build the world's most innovative fintech companies. How do you define innovation? Is it the first mover? Is it the one who does it the best? What is it? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think it depends on the situation. And so I guess we would define innovation as that there's lots of different kinds of innovation, but as being, as changing a paradigm of some sort. But I think you can do this in a lot of different ways. You can, there's technological innovation that allows companies to do things that weren't possible before. And I think uh, like OpenAI is a great example of this, where I think there's a lot of really interesting ways in which LLMs and AI are going to change financial services going forward. I think there's business model innovation, which is actually a lot of what fintech really is, which is completely changing the paradigm. Like think about wealth management, which has traditionally been uh, an AUM game where wealth managers and RIAs have really monetized via a percentage of someone's net worth. I've never in my life understood why we ought to pay, why if I make more money or if I'm more successful, I should actually pay a higher fee for my wealth management needs. And so business model innovation, I think is a huge part of this. And then there's, I think, the ability to also have innovation on... And, and, and then like I think where it's something really powerful is where you can actually combine the two and serve a whole new customer segment in a completely different way. And then of course, there's, there's product innovation, which I think ties somewhat to technological innovation, which is offering a new kind of product that, that just doesn't exist today. Portage also focuses on early stage to series B investing, right? So my question is, why focus on this particular segment? What is special about it that is different from let's say seed or, or growth stage or later growth stage rather? And what are some metrics that you rely on when you're trying to assess whether the company has achieved product market fit and what is growth potential? I think this is really about the, like where, I think there's multiple ways to win in venture, period. Within fintech, I think there's opportunities to invest across all stages that could produce results. I think the question of why focus on A and B is really about the DNA of our partner team and what we like to do. And I think it's most of the rest of my team, we've got reasonably diverse backgrounds, but we all have some operating within and or investing. And I think A and B for me personally is super exciting because you kind of understand that the business model is working and you've got some metrics to back that up. And so lots of different kinds of things that we look at on the B2C side can start there. We're looking at customer engagement, looking at cohort retention. We're looking at obviously revenue growth. And, and user growth and real nuggets of traction and customer love on a product. And you, you have a product to look at. It's not just a team. And obviously, the team is always going to be a huge and central component of all early stage investing. As you move into B, it's all about scalability. So seed is all about the team. Is this the right team? The A is all about, do we believe there is some sign of product market fit and a product that we think is solving a real problem? And do we have evidence of that? And what is the evidence of that? And in series B, it's all about, are, is this company ready to scale its go-to-market? And I think you uncover different answers to whether or not this is going to be a big business 
across each of these stages. And it, they kind of stack on each other. So you're always going to ask the same questions at seed, but you will ask the same questions at, at A, which is, is this a team that I want to back? That question still exists at B. Same with the questions that you add on at A also exist like around the product and whether or not there's product market fits still exist at B, but you just layer on additional questions around. And then as you move into C, D, and E, I think there's other other questions that you're asking. I know my next question is a little difficult, but what are some of Portage's portfolio companies that you are really excited about? Yeah, I mean, it's like asking who your favorite child is. I, I there's there's a bunch of them that I'm really excited about. I can talk about a couple of them. The first is a company called Tallied, which is a new and modern payment processor starting in the credit space. So think about them as being a Marketa starting with revolving credit. So if you wanted to launch a credit card today, your options would be mainly old incumbent providers like Galileo and I2C. And so this company is aiming to rebuild with a brand new stack, brand new APIs, the ability to launch a credit card or a revolving credit product of some sort in an easy fashion. And so I'm super excited about this company because I do believe there's, even if you, there's a ton of value in even just rebuilding old legacy infrastructure with the, a new modern stack. And so in, 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 the framework that I gave earlier, I think this could be both product and tech innovation here. I think it's in squarely in the theme of embedded infrastructure as well, and its core infra- its core payments infrastructure as well. So I think if you are a fintech and or a non fintech, if you want to launch a, pro- a card program, you're not going to want to build all of this infra from scratch. And so the ability to just plug something in that's out of the box. I think is part of this theme of embedded infra and the team I think is really excellent. It's an, it's a team of fintech veterans. The CEO Sunil is ex, is ex Marketa himself. So he understands this space well. And so that's kind of one company, the exact kind of opposite on the exact opposite end of the spectrum. I've done a couple of different B2C fintech investments that I'm really excited about. One in a company called Albert, which is growing really quickly and I think will end up becoming what I think could be one of the leading consumer bank products in the US. I think it's the hook is something that I've been passionate about for many years, which is that I think two different things, people want to feel connected to a source of advice that is a human. So Albert has a number of geniuses that you can be connected to at any time. And think about the number of times that you've been on hold with Chase or Verizon or any large company, but especially large banks at B of A, whatever else. They have the ability to use tech to provide unrivaled customer service at scale. And there's not really another example of a consumer fintech that can do that with good unit economics. And so that's another example of where I've had a long kind of a long standing thesis that I'm particularly excited about. Again, very different stage profile. We've got and then finally I would say maybe I'll try to give something 
completely different gear. There's a company that I'm invested in called Haruko. They're, an ins- they're a set of institutional tools for banks, hedge funds, other kinds of fun- asset managers, RIAs to actually connect in DeFi tools. So they built an institutional wallet. They built a PMS RMS for risk management. And I think this is a theme because we have such strong conviction in crypto as a space that I believe is going to be around over the next decade, despite being in a crazy bear market today, I'm still really excited about what they've built with a really lean team. Portage also recently announced the closing of its third fund and the launch of its first late stage fund. What is the secret of success of Portage and what sets you apart from the other funds? So I think we are 100% focused on fintech. I think that differentiates us from some other funds. And then you probably had a number of people on the podcast who do also focus on fintech. I think our points of differentiation are one, we're global and have a global perspective on things. I think in fintech specifically, you need a, you need to have a global perspective and there's a lot, but also you need to operate locally when you do, because a lot of the regulation differs from country to country. I think the second part of our real differentiation is we have LPs that are both institutional investors like pensions, but also corporates, banks, wealth managers, insurance companies, and where it's helpful, we can connect our fintech portfolio with our wider corporate ecosystem. We've been, we have a full team dedicated to doing that and we've been pretty successful at it. We've done multiples, call it 30 million bucks of commercial contract value last year alone that that we directly facilitated between our fintech portfolio and our wider, our like and our wider ecosystem. It's something that we invest a ton of time into, and I think it's a huge differentiator for our ecosystem. And then I would say the last component is we've got a vertical specific value creation team that work really closely with our portfolio companies. So Jonathan Metric is our head of go to market. He's been the interim CMO for a number of our large portfolio companies over the years. We've got Joseph Lau, who's our CISO. He, security is a huge, important component of moving money and holding money and custodying different kinds of assets. So we take security pretty seriously. He's worked with a number of our companies on security best practices, fraud vectors, SOC 2 compliance, et cetera. This is, these are kind of, vertical specific folks that that can work closely with our portfolio companies. We've had other kinds of folks in the B2B sales group that we've brought to bear as well, a CTO as well. And, and these are folks that really roll up their sleeves and work closely with portfolio companies. My next question will be of special interest to our listeners. Is Portage hiring? If yes, what do you look for in potential colleagues? Yes, we are hiring. We're hiring at least for one other member of the investment team. We are typically looking for super independent self-starters that can do what we describe as the full stack of investing. And so for us, all of our roles require you to do sourcing, diligence, thesis building, portfolio work because we're pretty hands-on with our portfolio companies. And so we're looking for people that spike at at least two of those areas. 
So it requires, I think, a unique combination of both EQ and, and IQ. And for us, I think central to that is a strong, proven interest in fintech and or financial services. Because that is all we do. We spend our days working, looking at, thinking about problems, like es- sometimes pretty esoteric problems in the financial services space. So if you can't get excited about when the real-time rail is come to fruition in the US or what the retail RIA and RIA portfolios look like 10 years from now, it's probably not the right place for you. Switching gears, let's talk about the fintech market overall. While Portage is global, you have a strong presence in Canada. So can you share a bit about how the Canadian fintech ecosystem is evolving and what are some trends you have observed? I don't spend very, I personally don't spend very much time in Canada. We've got a couple of folks there for sure. But so I can still answer the question, but most of my companies do not serve the Canadian market, but the Canadian fintech ecosystem, I think is no, is really unique. I think there's, you have to separate two out two different things. The first is there are lots of companies that are based in Canada that serve other markets, particularly the U.S. Talent talent is abundant. It has Canada's really good schools. And previous to this moment in time, there was really good arbitrage and salaries. So you could hire an engineer for 20 to 25% cheaper than you could hire an engineer in, in New York or SF. But obviously, there is a bit of a different... Obviously, the market has changed and shifted a little bit. Canada is no longer a secret. I do think there is still a currency arbitrage, if nothing else. And and with remote work post-COVID, I think salaries have adjusted quite a bit. And so you can be remote and work for a US company. And so the salaries in Canada are no longer hugely different, although there is at least a, a currency arbitrage. And I would say there's still probably a 10 or 15% difference. So the second component of the question is, so so I think over time, lots of different U.S. companies have built Canadian offices in Toronto, in Waterloo, in Montreal, in Vancouver, and headquartered them there over time. It's actually driven the, the price of talent up significantly. And so that's one component of things. I think the second dynamic about Canada is it is a what people consider to be a pretty small, a smaller market. It's got 35 million people. But what people don't realize is that it's super concentrated in five incumbent institutions today, which are the five large banks. And so I think innovation has been, because it's been highly protected by regulation, innovation has had, has been very slow. And it's been an oligopoly of, of financial institutions. So I do think there are massive profit pools still to be disrupted in Canada. We've made a number of investments that hopefully are, will be the disruptors of what are some of the highest fees in the world. And so in the banking sector, we have an investment in a company called Coho, which is the Chime of Canada. It's a neobank that operates there. In the wealth management sector, We've got a consumer fintech called Wealth Simple that is kind of the wealth front of Canada. We hope that they will disrupt, and they have a number of different business lines. They're kind of the Robin Hood, the Chai, uh, sorry, the Robin Hood, the Coinbase, and the 
wealth front of Canada. So they started as an investment robo product. They moved to being a, tr- a, a single stop trading app. And they've now moved to also being the largest crypto brokerage and exchange in Canada. And so we definitely believe that there are massive profit pools to be unlocked by innovative companies. We also, and, and, and our fourth company in the space is a company called Nesto, which is a B2C company that operates in, in the mortgage space. They're both a lender and a mortgage company, but you need to really be the winner or one of the winners in that space. But I do think you can build massive billion dollar companies domiciled in Canada, serving the Canadian market in fintech because these are, because it's a huge part of the GDP and it's today really dominated by a very small number of very large financial institutions. I think people don't know this, but the financial institutions in Canada are some of the largest in North America because it's such a concentrated ecosystem. And so you can look at the top two banks in Canada are probably in the top 10 banks in North America. Think about the thousands of community banks that exist today. It's it's a really very different market structure that is far more concentrated. And since one of your areas of interest is consumer fintech, I want to ask you about that. The industry has had a rough time over the last six months. Do you believe that there has been a work correction where otherwise sound companies have been a victim of negative sentiment in the market? And do you believe that there are certain segments within consumer fintech, for example, lending or wealth management that are likely to grow faster than other segments? So look, I'm, I said this up front in the podcast, I am a huge contrarian on how people think about consumer fintech today. I believe that it's, there are going to be a lot of new winners in the consumer fintech space. From a macro perspective, it just doesn't make sense that there would only be that the incumbents would just win. We need better experiences than exist today, period. Every time I open, I think the bank apps are fine. And I think the best place to start, and it's been in some ways, that's where the 1.0 companies have have started. I'm not sure they've really succeeded necessarily in fully serving this space, but there's a huge market of underserved and underbanked people. Easiest to see this in emerging markets with companies like Nubank, but I do think there's a huge underserved population, subprime, alt, prime, alt, or near prime, all of whom today aren't underwritten well and served well by financial institutions and they pay the highest fees. I think that's where 1.0 fintech has mainly focused, or a lot of 1.0 fintech. That's not quite true in the wealth management space. Um, but I believe there's still room to innovate there for sure. I think I think the companies that are going to be most successful are going to be the ones that are able to figure out a way to rebundle, like be best in class at one thing and then rebundle other products, whether that's lending, whether that's wealth management, whether that's core banking, whether that's bill pay, whether like I think in the consumer fintech space, you need like the the root over time has been very clear. You need to serve a segment extremely well and you need to rebundle in order to figure out a way, in order to make the unit economics work. And so in every segment, and I think the sub-segments are going to be more and more narrow over time because you can actually serve different segments. Like in the on the B2B side, there's going to be, you're already seeing vertical-specific POSs. You're already seeing 
vertical SaaS, um, I, like I think you're going to need to, on the SMB side at least, as well as the consumer side, kind of narrow your segment to better and more fully serve your audience. But which means you're going to need more than one product over time. You might start in lending, but you're probably going to move to something else. Lending is the one area that I would say you you might be able to stay there for a while because the margins, if you underwrite properly, are pretty good. But I think for the majority of other companies, that's really been the goal. We haven't seen it be successful in version 1.0 yet, with the exception of a company like Newbank. I would also say Albert has multiple product clients. Well, Simple now has multiple product clients. Where it's still this thesis. Fondadar and Co., which I've also invested in at multiple product lines. This thesis is still playing out. It's going to need a few years to for it to fully play out because really the infrastructure, I talked about embedded infrastructure and the ability to embed a credit card and or lending product. Over time, that infrastructure is going to get better, which is going to make it easier for others to embed new kinds of products into their existing offer. The APIs just aren't there yet, which is part of the reason it's been so challenging. Well, the last segment what I'd like to do is introduce you more as a person to our listeners. And I have a couple of rapid fire questions lined up for you. My first question is, what is the fun fact about you that most people don't know? I have super long fingers and I can hit 12 keys on the piano. What is a FinTech app on your phone that you really enjoy using every day? That's an interesting question. Um, I use quite a few of them. So... I'm an Albert customer, of course, not to keep plugging my own portfolio companies. I mean, I am, I spend a lot of time and I still use Venmo quite a bit on, on, on the peer to peer side. That's probably one that I use every day. And then, and then kind of an out of the box answer to this is I think a lot of the messaging apps will soon, if not already, be fintech apps. So. I think that's a trend to look out for in the future. What advice would you give to graduates who want to work in venture capital? Do you recommend gaining operating experience first or to directly try and break into VC? I think operating experience is always valuable. It gives you empathy for the entrepreneur that you otherwise would not have. Um, I think the route into VC is there's no, it can be quite circuitous. It's all about banging down as many doors as you can. Timing and hiring of and hiring is very network driven. So again, it's all about meeting as many people as you can. And there's no one route into VC, but I would say demonstrate an interest in the tech and the startup world, whether or not that's angel investing, whether or not that's advising companies on the side, whether or not that's having a subject thesis that you're building out or an investment thesis that you're building out on something like these are all, I think ways to show that you're interested in investing and interested in tech. If you could go back in time, let's say 10 or 15 years, is there any professional decision you would make differently or change? I don't know if there's a professional decision that I would have done differently. Honestly, it all, I try not to regret things. I live all of the experiences that I had kind of led me to where I am today. I would say, and they were, and it, and it wasn't always clear what I was going to do next. And I, and I still sometimes joke that I don't know what I'm going to be when I grow up. Um, but I would say it's, yeah, I don't know that there's anything that I would change. That's good to hear. 
having no regrets is the way to go. All right, Steph, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Really enjoyed Thanks, talking man. to you. Likewise. Have a good rest of the night. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Walk in Fintech podcast. If you like the show, then please show us some love on social media or consider leaving a review. It means a lot to us and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at Walk in Fintech. There you will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. As always, special thanks to our editor Rafael Ostiria. Signing off until next time. I'm your host Tarang Gupta.